You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, church. My name is Jessica Gray, and I attend church here at Redeemer Odessa. Uh, This morning, we're going to be reading from Psalm 130. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me, or it'll be up on the screen. Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, Jessica. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're new, uh, there is a connect card under your chair, or we have QR codes in the back on the hospitality table. You can take a minute, fill that out, get it back to us, let us know how we can serve you, how we can plug you into the life of the body. We have an app. uh, You can download that and connect with us that way as well. On that app, there's a Bible um, and sermon notes for you to fill out if you need them. Um, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Bogdan has a few. He can, uh, he can bring them to you. And if you're on your phone, we, we use the ESV. Um, and so you can follow along that way too if you're on your phone. If you're new to Redeemer Church, one of our core convictions is, is we preach what's known as expository preaching. Um, what that means is it is our desire to feed you a steady diet of the scriptures. We're going to preach word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through entire books of the Bible. So that allows us to constantly put the word of God in front of you in a holistic and a contextual sort of way. This also keeps the leadership from picking and choosing parts of the Bible that we like or easier parts of the Bible to preach or taking scripture out of context. When we preach this way, we have to deal with the things in scripture. And so just by conviction, we practice expository preaching. Um, Again, if we preach this way, we're going to have to deal with some hard things and some hard sayings of the Bible. And all of that is meant for our good. So about 80% of the time we're going to do this. Um, there are going to be some times when we're going to be doing some more topical things in nature. So last fall, we actually walked through seven or eight weeks on lamenting. And I thought it was really great. At least it was really good for me personally. Um, so I just kind of want to revisit lament one more time today. Lament, if you're, if you're new to this language, lament means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. As an action, it's mourning things in our lives that just aren't the way they should be. They're not right. 
Christian lament then is, is our prayer language. It's how we navigate this space in our lives uh, between where life is hard and God is worthy to be trusted because he is sovereign, he is reigning supreme, he is in control, he's worthy to be trusted, and he's worthy to be praised regardless of our circumstances. Christian lament is our prayer language. It's how we bring these sorrows and griefs and even complaints to God. So when you look at the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, we see there are huge sections of Scripture devoted to lamenting. There is even a book called Lamentations. And so when you get to the book of Psalms, for example, it is compiled of 150 psalms. And out of those 150, there are at least 50 of them. So like one-third of the entire book of Psalms is dedicated to lamenting. And so there are different types of laments in the Psalms, from personal laments to corporate laments. And I've just decided, I've committed in my head the necessity of keeping this discipline of lament in front of you uh, as often as possible. Because I really just don't think we know how to do this very well. We don't mourn, we don't grieve often, or we don't mourn and grieve well enough. Um, For a lot of us, our position is just like, I don't want to deal with this pain. I'm going to set it over here. I'm going to get through it as fast as I can. Um, If I just leave it over here, I don't have to deal with it. Let's be honest. That's how a lot of us mourn and grieve. And there is a way. I'm going to tell you a better way. There is a better way to mourn and grieve things in your life in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. And so while I don't think that lamenting is the total sum of the grief and healing process, Christian lament is much healthier than repressing your feelings or avoiding your feelings or pretending like it's not broken. And so I want to take this morning and circle back to lament. But specifically, I want to talk about repentance this morning lamenting sin in our own lives. So we talk a lot about the need for repentance at Redeemer Church, but I don't think I've done an adequate job equipping you for repentance. So it's possible that you know that you are in sin. It's possible that you know you have sin and know that you need to be forgiven, but maybe you don't really know where to start and what to do with that. And so I want to talk about that today. It's also possible that you are right now, as you sit in here, hiding in some secret sin. So I just want to lovingly call you to repentance this morning. Because it is for your good. And it is for the glory of the Lord. The hope this morning is not that you will be crushed by the weight of sin that you would really see that repentance is a great mercy to you. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. This text will end with so much hope and assurance, but before we get there, we have to deal with the sin that necessitated the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of this sin. Just as a little disclaimer before we jump in, it is entirely possible this morning that your toes are going to get stepped on And I'm not out to get you. 
but I do desire to be very, very specific about the seriousness of sin and the weightiness of sin because I desire the church to be marked by holiness. And so some of this may sting, but it is for your good. God loves you too much to leave you like you are. So if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling condemnation, if you're feeling offended, if you get to the place where you want to throw some hands, um, I just ask that you would take that to the Lord. Ask him to show you your unbelief or show you your pride and ask him to root out those feelings and receive his love and his correction with humility. I just ask for all of us to approach this text with some humble submission to Jesus and the authority of Scripture this morning. So let's pray, and we're going to jump in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would root out distractions, Lord, and help us to engage with you. Lord, I pray for the wandering believer in here this morning that you and your kindness and your grace and your mercy would call us back to faith, call us back by your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Church, if you're willing and ask that you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Be near, Lord Jesus. We love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 30, beginning in verse 1, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So we have in Psalms what are known as seven penitential psalms or psalms of confession. And out of the seven, this will be the sixth one. So what this means for us is that when the psalmist says he is crying out from the depths, it means he realizes that there are some personal consequences that have led him to where he is. Sometimes in life we struggle and we suffer because life is hard. Other times we make really horrible decisions and there are some consequences for those things. The psalmist then is writing from a place of awareness that his sin has taken him further and further away from the Lord than he ever thought possible and that he ever intended to go. This is a desperate plea. This is not an appeal to self-help, and this psalmist is not relying on self-pity. No, this is desperation. He is crying out in desperation to God as the only one that can fix our circumstances. What we're seeing then is this expression of grief and anguish. What we're seeing here is that this is a plea from a godly person, a person who genuinely loves the Lord, who in a moment or in a season of unbelief and pride and rebellion has wandered away from God and his promises and has fallen into sin. This is a godly person who has fallen into sin. What we're also seeing is that the psalmist's grief isn't over the fact that he made a bad choice 
or that the psalmist's grief isn't over the fact that he did something he knew he wasn't supposed to do. No, the psalmist is grieved because he has sinned. He is a treasonous rebel against God. And this sin has led him to fear, it's led him to guilt, it's led him to shame, and it's led him to condemnation. The psalmist is grieving a relationship with God that has been fractured by sin. The psalmist gives us a picture of not only what sin does as it alienates us from God himself, as it breaks fellowship with God, but this is also a picture of a proper response for sin. And that is when we're in sin, we're meant to cry out to God, even in or especially in moments when we're in sin, because grace is available to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.20 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's what we see in verse 2. Verse 2 of this psalm is saying that in spite of the magnitude of this sin that has pushed the psalmist to despair, that God is still not distant from him. The psalmist knows God because he has been with God and therefore knows that God has promised to never leave him and never to forsake him. So he knows that God is attentive to the cries of his children. This is a cry from a convicted yet a repentant heart that knows the promises of God to him. So the psalmist, following the pattern of lament, addresses God, and now he begins to submit his request to God. And this request is, Lord, be attentive to me. Pay attention to me, God. Be attentive to my desperate cries for mercy. Even though I know I don't deserve this mercy, please be attentive to me. And this leads to his confession. Let's look at verse 3. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We don't know what specifically this sin is. We don't even really know who the psalmist is, but there is an admission that this person has sinned. There is an acknowledgement that God is holy. God is set apart. God is blameless. God is perfect, and we're not. And then there's an acknowledgement that God is willing to forgive, even more so than we are willing to confess. God is willing to forgive. The psalmist says, Lord, if you marked iniquities, we'd be in trouble. God, if you kept score, we would lose every time. But God, you don't keep score. There's only unmerited grace and mercy for those who admit that they need it. Listen, some of you function like God is some cosmic scorekeeping taskmaster, and at the end of the day, if your good deeds outnumber your bad ones, then you have done enough for the day to appease the angry deity who is wetting his sword ready to smite you. But that's not the God we see in Scripture. He is not up there measuring your life in a scale with weights and balances. 
What we see in scripture is actually a God who hates scales. Because if you really consider just how broken and sinful you really are, you can never do enough to measure up. But thanks be to God, through Jesus, God is faithful even when we are faithless. There's forgiveness, there is grace, and there is mercy for repentant sinners. Unfortunately, most of us don't take this kind of approach to sin. Most of us would rather minimize it than actually turn from it. Some of you deny your sin. Some of you pretend like you're okay when you really aren't. Some of you act like you are not guilty of anything before God. Some of you blame shift in the midst of sin. You would admit that you're guilty, but that it's not your fault. You would admit you're guilty, but then you blame other people and blame your circumstances as a justification for why you sin. Yeah, I messed up, but it's my parents' fault. Yeah, I messed up. Yeah, I sinned, but this person made me so angry. Yeah, I make mistakes, but it's because of dot, dot, dot. And you never own it. You blame shift. And then some of you compare yourselves to others. You would admit that you have sin in your life. But then you say, but yeah, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as his. Or yes, I've sinned, but I would never do that. You look at the sins of others as your measurement, your standard of goodness, not the perfect sinless Jesus. And I want to tell you something this morning. Denial, blame shifting, comparing yourselves to others will never remove your guilt. What it actually reveals is you don't really and truly see yourself for what you truly are. Broken, needy, guilty, and condemned to death apart from the work of grace. If this is your continuous posture and attitude about sin, I want to caution you. You may not have experienced God's forgiveness. Because some of you just tolerate sin. Some of you have little to no desire for the things of the Lord. You have no desire to be connected to the body of Christ, the church. You have no desire for God himself. Some of you continue to live in willful, ongoing sexual sin. And that doesn't just mean fantasy and lust and pornography, but that also means sex outside of the confines of marriage or living with someone that's not your spouse and sleeping with someone that's not your spouse. Some of you claim to be Christians, but you never read your Bible or pray. Some of you know what the scriptures say, and then you don't do it. Or you do the exact opposite. And you would say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not that bad. 
Friends, it is a huge deal. And you are far worse. We are all far worse than we even realize. Your sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, cost the God of the universe the death of his son, Jesus. Your sin had to be dealt with. Because God is a just God. Your sin had to be paid for. Because God is a just God, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Because God is holy, he cannot and will not tolerate sin. Because God is a just God, the penalty against sin is death. But because God is love, God was not willing to leave us as we were. And he came and he lived a perfect sinless life, the life that we were called to live. And he lived it perfectly. And then he willingly went to the cross and died the death that we should have died. Jesus took our punishment upon himself. That was our punishment to bear. That punishment was earned. And your response then with all of this that you know, all of this that you claim to believe, your response then shouldn't be a casual attitude towards sin or a casual attitude towards your spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and praying. Your sin was costly and Jesus paid the price. And so often we carry on like it's not a big deal. So many of you just continue down the path that you're on, the same path that you've been on, and wonder why nothing ever improves. Or you wonder why you're always anxious. Or you wonder why you always feel stuck. And you wonder why you don't make any significant strides in your fight against sin. It's because you're not growing in Christ. You're not growing to look more like Christ in word and deed and motive, which is the goal. The goal is to grow to be more like Christ. The primary goal of Christianity is not that we get to heaven. That is an awesome reward. But the primary goal is that we look like Jesus and we get to be with Jesus. And you're not growing in Christ. You're not growing in holiness. Because if you remain casual towards sin then you're communicating that you don't really desire to grow in Christ and you don't really desire to grow in holiness. And again, if you don't desire Jesus, if you don't desire the things of Jesus, you may need to consider if in fact you do believe in the Jesus of the Bible. If you want to grow in godliness, you must confess that you need Jesus. And that means that you confess that you are a sinner in need of saving from the punishment that was rightly yours. The psalmist gives us a picture of rooting out sin, and that is he confesses it. Confess your sins, receive God's forgiveness. There is no fake Christianity in this practice. There is no pretending here. Don't lie to yourselves and others pretending that you are anything other than what you are. We're all people in desperate need of help. 
Be honest with the Lord. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with others. And it's so hard. It's so hard to be vulnerable. But there's blessing and freedom in dying to your sin. The more you become aware of your sin, the more glorious and wonderful the cross becomes. When we confess our sin, we give it over to God. And when we give it over to God, we don't have to carry it anymore. There is mercy and forgiveness. And when we have received the forgiveness of God, any feelings of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation that we have, they don't come from God. They come from our flesh and they come from the enemy. When we know we are forgiven, there's forgiveness. And the fear of man, the fear of condemnation, worldly fear gives way to fear of God. And this doesn't mean that we fear God because he is powerful enough to destroy us, even though he'd be just to do so. That's not what the fear of God means. But that fear is the fear, though we are weak and not worthy to approach him, we can humble ourselves in submission to him, who is worthy of this honor. We acknowledge our neediness of him, and that leads to worship and praise for who he is and what he's done. Some people would call this reverence, and while I don't disagree, I don't think that's a full picture of what this is talking about. So if you consider some more of stories in the Old Testament, people would have encounters with God or an angel, and you don't see them thinking, maybe I should muster up a little reverence right now. They fall on their faces for fear that they're about to die. It's because they're encountering a God who is so powerful and mighty. And out of all of his creation, God is most fond of us. We know just how unworthy we are to behold him. Yet he delights in you. He delights in us. Wonder and awe should overtake us. And our repentance leads to worship and trust in what God has done through Jesus. God has paid for our sin through himself by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. God covers our sin when we uncover our sin through confession and repentance. Listen, God hates sin, but God loves us. And when you understand just how sinful we are, that is why grace is amazing. The cross shows us God's hatred of sin and love for his people at the exact same time. God the Father laid on God the Son the iniquity of us all. And there is is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But, and here is an important but, Christians, there is now responsibility. Christ has justified us by the purchase of our pardon. He has made us right as if we have never ever sinned. Not so we can continue to live for ourselves and give no thought to God, but so that we can now live for him. 
so that we may lay down our sinful desires for his holy desires and that we moment by moment are being transformed to be more like Jesus in thought and in action and in motive. We, maintain, we get to maintain fellowship with God in order to continually be in his presence. And then we can continue to know the goodness of his mercy. In the kindness of God's mercy, we experience the blessing of forgiveness daily. Repentance is a gift. And when we are abiding in, when we are walking with, when we are spending time with Jesus, we become more aware of our sin and more aware of our need for grace and forgiveness. And that's a gift to you. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 5. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting for the Lord means receiving God's grace. Tony Marita says it's oftentimes sitting in silence before God, or other times it means we're waiting with an expectation that God is going to act. In our text today, it means hope in the word of God. Church, it's impossible for you to hope in God's word if you never read your Bible. It's impossible for you to hope in God's word if you aren't meditating on God's word. If you're not filling your life up with the Holy Scriptures, you have no idea what it says and how it speaks to whatever situation you're in. David says in another psalm, I hide God's word in my heart so that I might not sin against God. You can't hide God's word in your heart if you aren't engaging with the scriptures. When you don't pray, when you don't read the scriptures, you aren't fighting sin. Or at least you're not fighting well. Waiting for the Lord means you have your soul engaged with Jesus. When you don't engage the Lord, your faith if you have faith at all, is shallow at best. Dr. Kinder says that it's the Lord himself, not simply escape from punishment that the writer longs for. Notice that this is more than wistfulness or optimism. In plain terms, the writer speaks of a promise. That means the writer speaks of God's word that he is going to cling to. It's not simply an escape from punishment. This is not a get out of hell free card. Hey, oh, thank you, Matt. We have a promise because Jesus came and Jesus rose. And Jesus, by his spirit, indwells inside of you if you are a Christian. And we have his word to us. How much in your life would change if you believed, really believed, and functioned like the God of the universe actually delights in you? How much in your life would change if you really believed and functioned like the God of creation loves you and delights in you? And he's not like your dad. He's never short with you. He's never cruel to you. He's never annoyed by you, and he's never distant from you. How much in your life would change if you actually believe that? Because he does. How much guilt 
and fear and shame and anxiety would give way if you believed the things that Jesus said about you and about himself. How much in your life would change if you actually cared for your soul and spent some time with the Lord? Man, you're called to this. Some of you Christians, listen, some of you just need to make a plan and do it. Some of you need to protect your time with the Lord and you just don't. Some of you would tell me, yeah, man, I'm so busy. I have no time for anything else. And then you spend all your time at home after work on the couch scrolling Instagram and watching Netflix. It can't just be me. (laughs) Can I tell you what has been the most helpful thing for me? I deleted all my social media. I'm stepping away from my notes, so this is where it gets dangerous. Um, (laughs) Facebook, let me start with Twitter, because this is a little safer space. Uh, Twitter made me hate liberals. Facebook made me hate conservatives. Instagram made me hate myself. So... Uh, I deleted it all. And this isn't a command. Like you, you do you, little sparkle. This is not a command. But honestly, like, evaluate your life. It's weird that Sunday mornings before I get up to preach, I get that text that tells me how much time I spent on my phone the week before. Um, since I deleted social media, it's gone way down. Since my in-laws deleted Hulu, it's gone way back up again. But um, this isn't a command, but I did delete my social media. And honestly, I'm way less anxious than I ever have been. And I'm more engaged with my family because I care more about what my kids are doing three feet in front of me than what your kids are doing at your house. And I'm way more engaged with the Lord. No offense to you. None of us are that interesting that our lives need to be projected that widely. Like, your kids are all really cute. I see them all the time. Uh, None of us live that interesting of a life. I hope that didn't hurt your feelings. That wasn't my intention. But it's been liberating for me. That's just some free stuff. So, I'm back here. How much in your life would change if you actually engaged the Lord? The psalmist says he is desiring to see the Lord like the watchman waits for the sunrise. Do you desire Jesus like this? All of us need some accountability. All of us need people in our lives that love us enough to tell us when we aren't honoring God in our words or in our lifestyles or with our money or with our time or with whatever else. So this is one reason why we push community so hard here. Our community groups are not intended to be social clubs and our community groups are not intended to be Bible studies. Fellowship is important. Not knocking fellowship, not knocking your social clubs. I think having friends with similar interests is great. Uh, certainly not knocking Bible study with other believers. That is super important as well. But what I've noticed is that 
people tend to hide out in those places. We need to push one another towards godliness, towards the worship and honor of Jesus with our whole lives, because that's the model of the New Testament church. They were together, but they weren't just together to be together. They were together to grow together in Christ. There is freedom in community. The goal is to be fully known and fully loved because that's our position as believers adopted in Christ. We are fully known and fully loved by God. And the church then is meant to be a reflection of God. So share your struggles with one another. And know that you're in good company with struggling saints pursuing growth in Christ. The psalmist ends with with a corporate plea. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Dr. Kinder again says there's a steady climb towards assurance. At the end of this psalm, there is encouragement for the many from the experience of the one. Uh, When you see Israel in the Old Testament, it corresponds to the church in the New Testament. So this is written for us. We live then in light of the resurrection. We know that Jesus has risen. And so for those of us in Christ, our struggle with sin is not how it ends for us. Christ gets the victory. We can face anything because Jesus lives. For the psalmist at the time he was writing this psalm, the resurrection hadn't occurred yet. So the psalmist writes in the hope of a future event that the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to finish what he started. And we live in light of this. Jesus has purchased us by his steadfast love And therefore, redemption, grace, mercy, and forgiveness are all available to us. God will redeem his people from all our sin. In this text, we don't see the psalmist working to make things better. Like the psalmist isn't promising to do better. The the, the psalmist isn't promising to never sin again. All we see him do is confess. He's confessing his neediness. He's confessing his neediness to God for God's great mercy. And church, that's all you have to do as well. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. Jesus has already done that. There's nothing you can do because the work has already been done. There's nothing you have to do. And there's nothing you have done that is beyond the saving reach of Jesus. All that is required of you is acknowledgement that Jesus has forgiven you. And you can receive his forgiveness. Repentance means that you confess and turn away from your sin in faith, knowing that God will deliver you from sin. And when you sin again, because you will... His mercy is new for you every morning. This sin, um, I'm sorry, the psalm doesn't specify the sin that the psalmist is in. And I think that's intentional for us. 
We aren't supposed to limit mourning and grieving sin to our major sins in our life. But we're to mourn and grieve all the sin in our life. The grace of God through repentance of sin makes us more aware of our sin. And that leads us to worship. Lamenting of sin reminds us that we even are not as we should be. But lamenting of sin demonstrates that we are willing to confess our sin and brokenness to God. It's acknowledging that we are broken. It's an acknowledgement that we know we need saving. It's an acknowledgement that we know that through Jesus, salvation and forgiveness are available to us. Lamenting of sin leads to the worship of Jesus. Our brokenness and our sinfulness is frequent. Therefore, let's continue to make confession and repentance a part of our normal rhythms and normal disciplines of life. If you're a believer, you have been forgiven. Therefore, worship Jesus for this mercy, this undeserved mercy to you. Man, if you're not a believer, you can receive his forgiveness. There is mercy available to you, but you have to admit that you need it. Confess your sins because God is faithful. Repent, receive his forgiveness because God has made a way for you to be restored and to be set free. So let's all repent and be free and believe this morning. Let's pray.